Hello everybody, Sucreyaro here, and you're listening to the Year of Blank Year of Stories podcast. If you remember from our last episode, which was outrageously short, and I said I was going to make up for it with another episode, but then I kept forgetting, and I never did, which, honestly, not that unusual for me, not gonna lie. But, it is the last week of March, and we have over half of our book to finish. We're on page 101 out of 330. I'm so freaking dumb. (laughs) And I should have known this was gonna happen. Jinxie, don't you dare yell at me. I know it'll probably happen. I fully expect it. But don't. Don't do it. But because we have no time to spare, and this will definitely be a two-parter at the very least, let's get started. Um, Once we were seated, that ordered for us, but oh yeah, this isn't the start of the chapter, because like... I don't know, I just... Meh. Last week. So, like... Meh. Whatever. I'm trying to find the exact spot. There were only four years difference between us, not really so much. We were getting on so well and I didn't want anything to spoil it. Do you want to be an inventor like Tesla? I asked. I could never be like him. I'm no genius, but I have invented a few things. What? I asked eagerly. He pushed the white plate to the side and took out a pencil. He began to draw an airplane different different in every way from the propeller planes I'd seen. It's a glider, he told me. Tesla is working on something he calls a flipper plane, which is a cross between a gyroscope and a plane, but it needs fuel. This is a glider that would ride the, ride the air currents like a hawk. I believe that we can't be so reliant on fossil fuel. It's going to run out someday. Tearing off a piece of paper tablecloth, he began to fold it in intricate ways. I learned origami in China, he said with a grin as he folded. When he was done, he got up and opened a window. Have to let some air currents in here, he explained. Then he shot his paper plane into the room. Everyone stopped eating and gasped as it sailed over their heads. Every second, I thought it would crash into someone's food, food, but but it kept going. I couldn't believe it. Finally, the little paper plane glided in for a landing on the windowsill. The entire restaurant erupted in applause, and so did I. That's wonderful. How can you say you're not a genius? I praised him sincerely. I'm not, he said, receiving his plane, but I would like to take what I'm learning from Tesla about magnetic magnetic resonances and apply it to aeronautical design. Planes are going to be huge. Do you think so? I asked. They seem so clumsy right now. They won't stay that way for long, he said. There are guys like me everywhere who are working on sleeker, better designs. You'll see, Jane. It's the future. Our meals came, interrupting us. 
They were a sort of egg pancake with shrimp, onions, and vegetables cooked and topped with cooked in and topped with gravy. Shrimp egg foo young, he told me. What do you think? I'm sure this is better than anything Mimi and Annette are having back at the hotel, I said. I still can't believe I met Benjamin Guggenheim. All those rich backers are are like that Guggenheim guy, he said as he ate with chopsticks. They're so full of their own importance, and it's absurd that he has that young girl young girlfriend, Nanette Aubert Obart Obar. I I don't care. I don't care enough. She's divorced or something. People gossip about them. She's not his wife. She's his side girlfriend. He's 46 and she's about 24 or 5. I suppose it's a trend with wealthy men, I suggested. I read that John Jacob Astor is marrying a woman 20 years younger than he is next month. Madeline Madeline Force. Yeah, she's 20. He's getting married next month if they can find a minister to marry them. Nobody will do it. Because of their age difference, I asked. And he, what? And he's divorced. Dad said, nodding. Their problem might help Tesla, though. He's trying to get in to see Astor before he sails off on his honeymoon. Ever since the last World's Fair, they've been great friends. They have a lot in common because Astor is a sort of amateur scientist himself. He's had articles published and even holds a patent on a moving sidewalk he invented. Astor was one of Tesla's backers on the Niagara Falls project. If they're such good friends, why is Tesla having so much trouble communicating with Astor, I asked. It's this Madeline Force romance. Astor and Madeline are lying low in his mansion in Rhode Island to avoid the press. The papers are having a field day with the scandal. I put down my fork and attempted to use the chopsticks by my plate. Studying that, I gave him my best attempt. I didn't have much luck. He chuckled good-naturedly good and took them from my hand. Like this, he instructed, arranging my fingers in the proper position. With his hand on mine, he worked the stick, scooping up the food and lifting it to my lips. To tell the truth, I was so pleasantly unnerved that I forgot to open my mouth. Oh, sorry, I said, laughing nervously when I realized the food was hovering in front of me. Now you try, he advised. My second attempt went more smoothly. I guess the timing is bad for Tesla, I remarked, as soon as I was eating well enough with the sticks. There are rumors that Astor is going to run off and get married, he replied. If Astor disappears on a prolonged honeymoon, it will be a disaster for Tesla. He won't be able to catch up with Astor to persuade him to finance his next idea. What is his next idea? I asked, finally spearing a piece of egg pancake with the end of my chopstick and getting it to my lips. Thad shook his head sadly. I can't tell you that. I won't tell anyone, I promised. Oh no. Ugh. Fucking dumbass. Please tell me that didn't pick up. I don't care enough, actually. Oh, no? He smiled. Aren't you writing a newspaper article? I guess so. I smiled back. Electricity. That held it for a moment, just the two of us looking at each other, the air charged between us. Then, just before it went on a beat too long, he said, when we go back, Tesla will probably be awake. I'll ask if he'll want to if he'll talk to you and see what he says. Then, if he wants to tell you, it will be up to him. Chapter 12. My long walk from 34th Street to Central Park went quickly because I was so fascinated by the rare, by the variety of people passing me. No doubt I was conspicuously gaping... I was conspicuous conspicuously the gaping room, drinking in every face that passed. New York City seemed to me like a reflection of the entire world. I loved its excitement. 
Thad had instructed me to meet Tesla at the entrance to the park at Columbus Circle. I was to walk with Tesla while he fed the pigeons in the park, a ritual he carried out every day, rain or shine. As I stood by the grand entrance to the park with my Tesla scrapbook tucked under my arm, my mind wandered, and I have to admit that it was Thad whom it veered toward. Our lunch together had been the first time I'd sat alone with a fellow, and, and honestly, I'd found it exciting. I liked everything about him, his sympathy for the common person, his interest in science, his independence in striking out for New York City on his own, and I couldn't get those vivid blue eyes out of my mind, or that white scar on his forehead, that handsome imperfection. I spied Tesla hurrying across the traffic circle, carrying a brown paper bag. With a nervously pounding heart, I hurried toward him as he came near. Sir, I'm Jane Oneida Taylor. You agree to let me interview you? He stopped and scrutinized me. Is Oneida really your middle name? He asked. My mother adopted it in honor of the native people who live near us. I explained. You're from northwestern New York, then? He surmised. Not far from Niagara Falls. I know you're familiar with that, I said. This brought a fond smile to him. Indeed, I am. You have done your homework. Yes, I replied. I have been doing it for the last 12 years. I know everything that has been printed in the newspapers, at least. I lifted my scrapbook to show him. It's all in here. He took it from me and perused it briefly. Then, no doubt, you know many things that are not true, he commented. Newspapers are not renowned for their accuracy. That's why I wanted to talk to you. Come, we will walk while I feed the pigeons. He nodded toward his paper bag. This is my own blend of birdseed. A pet store makes it to my specifications. It has all the nutrients a pet pigeon needs. Sometimes I feed them at Bryant Park behind the New York Public Library and other times here in Central Park. We entered the park, ambling along the winding paths as I asked him questions and furiously scribbled his replies in the blank pages of my scrapbook. I learned that he'd been born in... In Austria-Hungary in 1856, I quickly calculated that it meant he'd be he'd been 42 when I met him when I had first met him, and he was 54 now. He spoke Serbo-Croatian, Czech, French, Hungarian, Italian, and Latin as well as English. He loved animals, especially cats and pigeons, and he and was a vegetarian. He explained to me why alternating electrical current was a superior, superior to the direct current advocated by Edison. This is something the public has come to agree with me about, he said with a hint of pride. Even though Edison did his best to convince them otherwise, even to this day, Edison has not forgiven me for this defeat. It eats, it eats at, at his arrogant soul. All he cares about is making a profit. Don't you want to make money? I asked. By then, he had stopped at a boulder along a path. At the first sight of their faithful benefactor, the pigeons immediately fluttered to Tesla's feet. He began scattering seed for them. As he swung his arm in a smooth semicircle, an expression of such far-off absorption crossed his face that I could not tell if he was considering my question, was ignoring me, or had forgotten about my presence altogether. Finally, after several minutes, he spoke. Jiva is Shiva, he said. Excuse me? It means each person is divinity itself he explained, without taking his gaze away from the pigeons. I met Swam Swami Vivekananda when I was demonstrating at the Chicago World's Fair back in 1893. Between demonstrations of my rotating egg, which turned by, which turned by magnetism, I went to the pavilion where, where the Swami was speaking. It was his belief that, that only tireless work for the benefit of others is the true mark of the enlightened person. 
No one can truly be free until all of us are. I thought of the framed photo of the Swami that sat in our front parlor, his dark, piercing eyes staring out at us. And what the Swami said influenced you? I surmised. Profoundly, he replied earnestly. It was at the fair I also dem- I also first demonstrated wireless lighting. As the globes lit and my experiment was a success, I knew that wireless technology was the wave of the future and that energy from space could give all nations the advantages of free power. Give? I questioned. I could be a rich man, Jane. Right now, just like the rest of them. George Westinghouse. Westinghouse, the owner of General Electric, wrote me an extremely large check to develop electric power for him. But I knew that by accepting that money, I would immediately elevate the cost of providing the electricity, so I ripped it up. No one wants to invest in free power, because then how would the investors become rich? In my life, I had always accepted that there were... That there were rich and poor and those in between. I had never questioned the right or wrong or of it, nor what kinds of things all people would should be entitled to. Now Thad and Tesla were changing that. Was charging for electricity truly like charging for air? The subject seemed larger than I could really comprehend, and I certainly wanted to get off it. Is it true that you made contact with creatures from another planet? Alien life forms? I believe so. Do you real do you think that's really possible? I questioned skeptically. It is certainly possible. Probable even, he confirmed. Do you not think your mother would agree? My mother? Does not she want to contact other life forms, though in her case it is the other side? Those who have passed over? You know who I am, I cried, gasping. It was the sight of you that brought on my episode and sent me to my bed. He said, my mind was struggling to locate your first appearance, and it was causing a sensory overload. But I got it eventually, once I was able to dream. I saw you as a little girl. You were caught in my earthquake. Yes, yes, that was me, and my sister, who's with me, too. I know. I placed her as well. I have a photographic memory, and you do not look so different than you looked looked then. More mature, of course. Is that why you have come to me now, Jane? Does it have, does it have to do with that day? I thought I was merely there to interview him, but I suddenly realized I was more than that. I don't know, I admitted softly, an unexpected emotion in my voice. I have always remembered you and felt that somehow you would be important in my life, in my future. His eyes locked on me as though he were peering into my mind, or my heart. Do you want to travel with me to the future to see if I make a difference to you? What? I asked, not understanding. What do you mean? It comes down to physics, and there are several theories about this. My thinking on it is that, using something I call, I created called a magnifying transmitter, I could create electrical waves that travel one and a half times the speed of light. Once you pass the speed of light, time changes. In what way? I don't understand. Of course you don't understand. Few people do. It's an extremely complex application of quantum physics, but it's too dangerous still. Can you really travel to the future, I asked. Forget I mentioned it. We're all inevitably traveling toward the future, he said vaguely, rolling the top of his seed bag shut. That's not what you meant, though. I was sure of it. He wiped off seeds that were clinging to his coat. It does not matter what I meant. I must end our interview now because I am due to catch a train and meet up with Colonel Astor in Rhode Island at his summer estate and, abruptly cutting his sentence short, he grasped my upper arm and leaned forward, speaking in an urgent whisper. A sinister character is loitering behind a boulder several yards behind us. He's an ancient of one of my competitors.
Despite being warned not to, I shifted my gaze over my shoulder and did indeed catch sight of a stocky man wearing a full-length brown coat and a bowler hat pulled low on his forehead. How do you know? I asked in a whisper. I've glimpsed him before several times, Tesla replied in a low tone. In the Colorado Springs lab, I saw him fleeing the flames as I scrambled to save my research notes from the inferno. Still holding my arm, Tesla began to walk, hurrying me along beside him. This part of the park is very isolated, he explained under his breath. For safety's sake, I think it best to get out among the general population. For the first time, I noticed that we'd wandered down a shady cobblestone walkway, thick with foliage, but most definitely off the beaten path. Were we to be attacked? Were we to be attacked, there would be no one to come to our assistance. Quickly glancing behind us, I saw that the man had left the boulder and come onto the lane. I noticed he wore leather gloves and carried a walking stick with an ivory knob at its handle end. I feel like Sherlock Holmes in The Adventure of Central Park, I whispered, just to lay in the mounting tension and lessen my fear. Sadly, this is not a detective mystery. It is all too real, Tesla replied. The man quickened his pace, and we also began to walk faster. What do you think he wants? I asked. It was only when we reached the safety of the general population that Tesla answered, the destruction of my work, which is, inevitably, my own destruction. Chapter 13 When we arrived back at the Waldorf Astoria, Mr. Bolt was waiting for Tesla in the lobby. Colonel Astor married Miss Force this morning in Newport, he reported. They left immediately on his yacht for, his, for a honeymoon. When will he return, Tesla asked, clearly troubled by the news. He is planning an extended tour of Europe with his new young wife. Bad press and the bad press and scandal have been very draining for both of them, and they need to get away for a while. I would venture to say he will not be back for a better part of the year. A year, Tesla cried, throwing his arms out in frustration. You might send a telegram, Mr. Bolt suggested, though it will be difficult to reach him since he will be moving from hotel to hotel. This is terrible, Tesla said. I must go upstairs to my apartment to lie down. Are you all right? Can I help? I asked. Excuse me, Jane, he said to me. I am overcome. I thanked him for talking to me. It was my pleasure, he replied politely. Despite the fact that his complexion had grown nearly white and a purple vein in his forehead throbbed visibly, you are a courageous young woman with intellectual curiosity. May you never lose either trait. Thank you, sir. I hope you feel better. With a courtly bow, he strode off toward the elevators. I was sad to see him go. I gazed around looking for Mimi or Thad, but did not see either of them. I sat a few, I sat a few minutes looking over the notes I'd taken, and then went up the elevator to John Jacob Astor's suite to find Mimi. Nanette answered my knock and bade me to enter. Come, look at your sister. She is très chic. Mimi stood in the middle of the living room. Naturally, I recognized my own sister, but barely. Her hair was piled high atop her head, jeweled barrettes sparkling in the black sea of carefully sculpted curls. She had on a new satin dress so deeply blue that it seemed to shimmer. It boasted puffed sleeves from shoulder to shoulder, shoulder to elbow that narrowed dramatically as they continued down to her wrist. The long skirt, formed out with a black with a black under under canolin, revealed her black stockinged ankles. On her feet was a brand new pair of shining leather high leather high button boots. Dressed like, dressed like a young society woman, she was completely ravishing. Nanette bought this for me, she said. What do you think? You're gorgeous, I cried. Isn't she? Nanette said. The moment I saw Mimi, I knew she was a diamond in the rough. Now that she is polished, she will be a perfect companion. I think she's already a perfect companion. 
I said. Perhaps for you, Nanette allowed, but now she is just right as a companion for me. I looked to Mimi, confused. Mimi's voice was bright but strained. I'm going to Europe, Jane. Nanette has hired me as her assistant and companion. Isn't it wonderful? Wonderful? I cried. Have you gone crazy? Late that evening, I stood on the train station platform, still sniffling into a handle, sniffling into a handkerchief. How could Mimi do such a thing? I pleaded with her not to go off with Nanette Obar, Obar to, to Europe, but she insisted. She said fate had brought her this chance and she had to take it. She'd found an escape hatch, a way to discover who she might be in another sort of world. My mind reeled with the, with the possibilities. Would she ever come home? Might she jump ship, deserting even Nanette and some exotic port on the other side of the planet? How would I live without the big sister who had always been my best friend? It was going to be hard enough to face Mother as it was. Now I would have to tell her something immeasurably worse, that I'd lost my sister. I heard another announcement for a train bound for Washington, for Washington, D.C. I considered taking it and just running away altogether, but I, but I knew I couldn't do it. Not to return to Spirit Vale would have been further com would have been to further compound the, the hurt my mother and sisters would endure at the loss of me be. Jane I looked toward the shout to see Thad hurrying toward me, his blue summer jacket flying behind him. His hair was mussed and his brow was sweaty from running. His worried expression transformed into a smile of relief as he near as he neared me. Were you going to leave without saying goodbye? he asked. I smiled through my tears, glad to see him. Even in my misery, this was an unexpected pleasure. I didn't know where you were, I explained. How did you find me? I saw Mimi at the hotel, and she told me you had left. My tears started to fall heavily once again at the mention of her name. Did she tell you why she's not with me? I asked. She did, and I also see she's upset you badly. She says she wants to see the world, I spoke through my salty tears. She's not sure what her future holds, claims that this is her fate. He fished a, wor a worn but clean handkerchief from his jacket pocket and handed it to me so I could mop up the tears soaking my face. Oh, don't worry, she he said soothingly. She's astounded by all the stuff. You know, the dresses, the sweets, the decoration. A free trip through Europe is pretty hard to resist, don't you think? But to travel with those two, they're not even married, I objected. Judge not that ye may not be judged, Dad quoted the scripture lightly. I hung my head in despair. It's just wrong. That took hold of my hands comfortably. We can't control comfortingly. We can't control what other people do, he commented. I bet she'll be back home in no time. You'll see. Hanging my head, I nodded and sniffed. You really think so? Sure, he said. His unconcern and confidence were contagious and my spirits lifted a bit. He left. He left hold of my hand and gently whisked a lingering tear from my cheek. I'm not concerned about Mimi. She'll have a great time, he went on. It's you I was worried about. I looked up into his steady blue gaze. Me? Despite my upset state, my heart did a quick, delighted bounce. He was worried about me? Then the full realization of his unexpected appearance here hit me. He'd run the, he'd run the more than 12 blocks uptown to the station because of me. Me? Thad had heard from Tesla about the man with the bowler hat. Are you alright? Were you scared? He asked. Terrified, I confirmed. But Tesla is going ahead with this project anyway. Do you think that's wise? Will he be safe? I'll stick close to him like a bodyguard, Thad said confidently. I wasn't sure he'd be any match for the bowler top thug. 
Maybe you should start carrying a walking stick, I suggested. I was a wrestling champ back in school, he boasted with a playful wink. Were you really? I asked, impressed. Sure, I'm a preacher's son, remember? I wouldn't lie. Be careful anyway, I counseled. He looked deep into my eyes. Without meaning to, I leaned in closer, irresistibly drawn to his energy and warmth. I think he must have moved toward me as well, because we somehow came to be standing very close to each other. He's still holding my hands, I looking up at him. I don't think I know where you live, Jane. Dad said, it's steam from the newly arrived train billowed around us. I want to write to you. I want to write to you. Six simple words, but there was an unspoken multitude of words that could spring from them. On a day when I felt I'd lost so much, suddenly I had a brief glimpse of something being gained. Spirit Vale was so small that any letter addressed to me there would arrive at my house, and I told him, Would you really write? And I told him so. Would you really write? I asked, hopefully. I'd like to, he replied. I've enjoyed talking to you, and it would be good to keep it up, even if it's only through letters. That would be great, I said. You'd write back, wouldn't you? He ch he checked. Of course I would. With Mimi gone, I'll really need someone to talk to, and I also find it easy and interesting talking to you. We stood there a moment, smiling at each other like two fools. For all our talk of talking, we were, we were romantically speechless. The train broke the spell by sounding a warning blast. All aboard for Albany and connecting points on the Northwest Corridor, a conductor yelled. You'd better go, Dad said. I suppose so. It was hard to leave. We began walking together toward the train. How did your interview with Tesla go, he asked. Wonderful. It should be a great article, I told him, climbing up the metal stairs to the small platform between, between train cars. And the most amazing thing happened. He remembered me from all the way back in 1898. Can you believe it? I was only four at the time. The train's engine chugged and a white mist of smoke rose, rose up around me. Better take your seat, mist, a conductor advised. Thad jumped nimbly onto the train, grabbing hold of the railing between the cars just as the train moved forward. I gasped, but with a touch of delight at his daring. You'd better get down, I cautioned. I have a few minutes before it leaves the station, he said. The train slowly chugged, blowing its whistle as it inched up. Wait, did you say you were only four in 1898, he asked. I nodded. Why? I just assumed you were older. The train continued moving forward, slowly picking up the speed. Thad leaped easily to the ground. I was prepared for how wrenching his I wasn't prepared for how wrenching his jump away from me would be. I felt so safe with him. Now it was as though he jumped out of my life altogether. I was abruptly on my own again. He waved, but an uneasy expression played on his face, and mine probably mirrored it. Don't forget to write, I called back to him, waving as the train carried me off. He waved back but did not say anything. A conductor came to the doorway. You must take your seat, miss. It's not safe to stand here. With a last wave to Thad, I stepped aside. I slumped into the seat, despondent. Tears once again wet my eyes. The grim reality of my dismal situation, which had momentarily been cushioned by my delay at Thad's arrival, surged back on me with full force. I was on my way to a certainly angry mother and sisters who would probably be bewildered and feel caught in the middle. Would they all blame me for letting Mimi run off as she had? How could I face it all without her? And now I worried that the one bright spot I had to look forward to, letters from Thad, would not arrive. The last three minutes of our time together had, I feared, completely changed his view of me. In a second, he had gone from seeing me as his contemporary to viewing me as a child. Why couldn't I ever keep my mouth shut? 
The train was now running at full speed, racing into the blackness of a tunnel that would carry me away from this exciting city, and away from Thad. Shutting my eyes, I lost myself in the motion of the train carrying me forward. What would it be like to travel on and on and never and never arrive, simply to keep moving with no end point? I remembered what Tesla had said about traveling into the future. Before the moment, I was in no rush to get there. The future would be fully, op- fully upon me the moment I arrived back in Spirit Vale. Chapter 14, Spirit Vale, 1911 to 1912. My recklessness in taking off for New York was almost forgotten in mother shouting and weeping over Mimi's departure. Why hadn't I stopped her? How could I have let her go? I must not have tried hard enough to talk sense into her. It was as if I had been the older sister and could have somehow controlled Mimi. Mother decried the terrible loss of Mimi as irresponsible of me. The entire town took up my disgrace. Auntie Lily said I had had been the one who tricked her into driving us to Buffalo, when in actuality it had been Mimi's idea. Princess Running Deer did a Native American spirit ceremony to try to contact Mimi's living spirit to make sure she was safe. When no response came, Mother went into fits of distress, crying for days, certain some harm had come to her. Amelie and Emma provided unexpected comfort in in a weird sort of way. One night at dinner, Mimi suddenly stood up at the table and began to rock slightly as a faraway look came into her eyes. The same strange distance appeared in Amelie's expression. I have found her, Emma spoke in a trance-like voice, softer and gentler than her normal tone. Who are you? Mother asked cautiously. It's me, Mother. Amelie. We all looked at Amelie, but she gave no indication of being aware of us. Why had Emma said she was Amelie? We shifted back to Emma. Mimi is over water. It's night where she is, Emma said, still in her trance state. She is staring up at the moon. She is in love. In love, Mother cried and jumped up so forcefully that her dinner plate fell to the floor. With whom is she in love? The commotion had the effect of breaking Emma's trance. Her eyes blinked rapidly and lost their distant gaze. Whom is your sister in love with? Mother demanded. I don't know what you're talking about, Emma replied. Who is in love? We looked to Amelie, but she had rested her head on the table and was now soaring lightly. You said you were Amelie, I told Emma. Why? Emma shrugged. Did I? How odd. This news that Mimi was safe, derived from wherever, comforted us all, except her mother, who seemed to think that this was impen- that this impending romance simply upped the level of peril involved. Every time she looked at me, she seemed reminded of it anew and shook her head darkly. Only Blythe, recently turned 13, thought Mimi was brave and adventurous. She would have been an idiot not to have gone, she stated boldly to us one night when everyone was in the parlor and Mother was once again engulfed in tears and recriminations. This took everyone by surprise, since Wife was not usually one to buck the tide of prevailing opinion. We're not rich. There is no wealthy young man for her to meet in this town. The only young men at all are ones who have died and speak through other people. What else would she have a chance like? When else would she have a chance like this to see the world and find romance? Don't you go getting any ideas, Blythe, Mother chided. Your sister is involved with scandalous people. Who knows what this will do to her reputation or to her chances of finding a suitable marriage. Not some shipboard fling with who knows what manner of men. Of man. What do you care what people think? Blythe spoke to Mother with unforeseen defiance. Her words seemed so at odds with the ch- with the cherubic face that it made her s- that it made me see her in a new light as a surprisingly independent person, no longer a child. Most people think everyone in this town is crazier than a loon, she continued, and they're probably right. That doesn't seem to bother you. 
crazy, white, crazy. Mother cried, spluttering, sputtering incredulously. No one thinks that. People flock here for guidance. Crazy people, Blythe insisted. For being so insolent, Mother banished Blythe to her room, punishing her for the first time any of us could recall. She then confined me to my room, simply because I had brought all this on in the first place. This Blythe did not relent, making the autumn of 1911 one I did not particularly enjoy. But, like waves, events crash, roll in with a crash bang, then recede, leaving the waters calm, at least until the next waves come along. That's what I discovered in the weeks of being constantly confined to my room, a confinement during which I worked on my article about Tesla while thinking about that unceasingly. After a while, Mother stopped crying and quit noticing whether Blythe and I were in our rooms. The townspeople gave up looking at me with condemning glances. Late that November, teams of workers descended on Spirit Vale in flatbed trucks loaded with timber. It seemed that nearly the entire ta town came out each day to watch them work Work as, in a remarkably short time, I'm going country. I'm going country. I need to stop. I'm going like vaguely. Not. Mm. God damn. How was this book making me country? I'm going to be judged so harshly when people listen to this. Oh, my God. Uh, to watch them work, as in a remarkably short time, giant poles were erected along Main Street. The workers then scrambled up the poles and strung great lengths of telephone cable between them. Once again, as with the electric light... Leiden. The spirit was in the the spirit was the center of our first experience of the telephone. The first words spoken over the telephone cable in Spirit Vale were voiced by Auntie Lily. She was proud to be the one to speak them in front in front of a fascinated crowd that included Mother, Blythe, Emma, Amelie, and me, as well as many of the, of the other resident mediums. Hello, she said. Is this the Buffalo Police Station? It is. Well, we are pleased to report that all is calm here in Spirit Vale. Thank you. When Auntie Lily hung up, Madame Anushka lifted the tall black metal phone, turned the speaker piece in her hand. I wonder if the spirit world can be contacted in this way, she pondered aloud. It is might like talking to a spirit, Auntie Lily remarked. There's this voice talking at you, but no body. What if her aunt called you, called you up on that, Blake suggested with a touch of mischief. Now why would he do that when he's right here, Auntie Lily asked. He is still here, isn't he, Maud? She checked with Mother. Yes, and he said you were very intelligent to have this phone installed, Mother reported. Auntie Lily beamed proudly. By December, by December, I stopped checking. <coughs> Excuse me. Checking the mailbox continually, hoping for, for a letter from either Mimi or Thad. It had never been e easy to secretly check the mail at the box out by the White picket fence. My mother wasn't busy with clients or helping Auntie Lily with her own, with her hotel accounts. She was nearly camped there. She and W.T. Stan had begun a lively correspondence. To receive a new letter from him was the greatest pleasure of her life. I think it was safe to presume that mother was, had developed a crush on the noted journalist. He told her of, of Julia Spiro, an institution he'd established in 1909 where inquirers could could obtain information regarding the spirit world from the spirit guide, Julia. He had on staff a, guy, a group of mediums who, who could contact her. He also sent Mother small gifts. A pack of tarot cards, a crystal ball made of real crystal, clusters of amethyst stone for channeling and focusing energy. 
Another gift that arrived in early December was a Ouija board, which Mother immediately set about mastering and using with her clients. The plaque in her front yard soon read, Mild Anita Taylor, Medium Chandler, Binational Patterns Interpreted, Tarot Read, Crystal Energy Focus, Expert pra Practitioner of Ouija Board Contact. On Christmas Eve that year, my sisters and I each played a role in Spirit Vale's yearly production of A Christmas Carol held in the town center. As one might imagine, in a population focused on the spirit world, this play about Christmas ghosts and prophetic transformative dreams was held in very high and nearly worshipful esteem. I have been cast as Miss Cratchit. Wife was a beautiful young woman, Scrooge almost married. Emily and Am Emma and Amelie... The Ghost of Christmas Path is played as one entity, which was how people were starting to consider them. Auntie Lily made a wonderfully cranky, if somewhat effeminate, Scrooge. And Princess Ren and Deer was an ominous present as the presence as the Ghost of Christmas Future. Madame Anushka accompanied the scenes with haunting performances of her violin. The final bows were met with rousing cheers. All that was missing was Mimi. Afterwards, snowflakes began to fall as my sisters and I headed across the empty main, main road toward home. The fast-falling snow required us to flip up the hoods of our woolen capes. The light blanket of whiteness that quickly accumulated added, added to the quiet beauty of the town, with all its gingerbread porches strung in tiny white electric lights for the first time ever. It's so magical, Blythe commented wistfully. I hope it's snowing wherever Mimi is, and that some handsome fella is holding her hand. Me too, I, ans I answered, picturing Mimi in a Swiss mountaintop chalet with some prince by her side. The image also made me think of that. What was he doing this Christmas Eve? Was he at a party paying attention to, the to a girl, one prettier than me and closer to his age? Or was he deep in, in Tesla's laboratory, unaware of the celebrations outside? When we arrived home, Mother, who had left the, left the show at Curtain Call, was waiting with hot chocolate and candy canes. She'd put our wrapped gifts under the tree that, despite the, the general embrace of electricity, was still lit with delicate tinfoil cup candles on its branches. We were about to begin opening our gifts when we heard the, the new motorized mail truck at our, box, at our box and then move on. He's arriving late, Mother commented. He must have an overload of holiday mail. I'll go get it, I said, unable to resist, despite the fact that I had convinced myself neither Mimi nor Thea would ever write. I threw my cape over my shoulders and ran out the front door, once more into the snow, which was falling even more heavily than before. At the mailbox, I pulled out a stack of letters, mostly Christmas cards from our neighbors and one from W.T. Stead, sure to delight Mother. But also included in the delivery was a pack package wrapped in brown paper and addressed to me. Its postmark was from New York City. With excited, trembling hands, I ripped the paper apart right there. It was a book. Without even reading the title, I flipped and sat, looking for some kind of inscription or note, but there was none. Closing it, I read the title, The Time, Mach the Time Machine by H.G. Wells. It could have come from only one or two, one or two people. Tesla or Thad. What's taking so long? Mother called from the front porch. Are you all right? I'm all right, I assured her, heading back toward the house. She waited for me on the porch. Anything for Mimi? No, but Mr. Said has sent you a card. How wonderful, she said, extending her hand for it. She glanced down at the card, smiling fondly. Then she looked back to me. Merry Christmas, Jane. What do you say we put all our disagreements behind us and start fresh for the new year? I would like that, I said with a catch in my voice. So would I.
With her arm around my shoulder, we turned back to the house. Neither of us had any idea what the new year was soon to bring. Chapter 15 And so we lived through the cold month of January and February, when business was always slow and spare veil, and the, and the winter wind wailed down Main Street like so many spirits despondently wondering why their loved ones were not seeking their attention. The time machine stayed on my shelf, its spine unbroken. It had probably come from Tesla, I decided. I had given him our address before we parted. That that he thought of me at all touched me. His words Jiva and Shiva repeated in my head, but only because I liked the sound of them, much as pop much as a popular tune becomes lost in your brain. Of course I pondered why he'd sent me that particular book. I recalled him mentioning traveling to the future and I was eager to see if I could find the connection in the story, but to begin reading the book would make me think of that or that of Mimi, and I didn't want to dwell for too long on either of them. It was too painful. I could well imagine what that had him written. In fact, I imagined it incessantly, reliving over and over the dis- the disappointed look on his face when he realized my age. But where was Mimi? Why hadn't she written? My thoughts ran from ter- from horrible exi- anxieties about terrible perils that might have befallen her to an even more horrifying thought. Why did she decide to embrace her new life by cutting all connection to her family? I couldn't imagine that she would do such a thing, but it was a possibility. <laughs> It was easier on my emotions to stay close to my fictional companion, Sherlock Holmes, and his friend, the sensible Dr. Watson. Holmes was logical, rational, and impeccable in scrutinizing every detail. Watson and Holmes were men of the, were men of science, clearing a path of reason among the murky depths of crime and passion. They did not talk to the dead, nor did they run off to Europe on a whim or make a promise to write and then not do so. I continued to follow Tesla in the papers. I saw a picture of him at a press conference when his radio tower in Long Island was for, was foreclosed once and for all. He promised the gathered press that he was working on a new invention that would be so successful it would enable him to personally finance a new, higher tower with a stronger signal. He didn't look well. In the background behind Tesla was Thad, listening to his employer with intense interest. I took the photo on and studied it with often with a painful mix of longing and anger until it was a worn, nearly translucent shred. My accumulated collection of articles in my original interview, I wrote an article, article titled Through the Eyes of a Genius, just in time for the contest deadline. I mailed it, painstakingly typewritten type and bound with a blue ribbon to the sun. Then I tried not to think of it again. The Spirit Hotel was all but empty at this time of year, so Auntie Lily didn't need my help as a chambermaid anymore. Mother decided I no longer needed schooling, so I was given the responsibility of tutoring Blythe, a task I enjoyed more than I expected. It seemed Blythe, who had always seemed so contented to play with her dolls, was now chomping at the bit to get out of Spirit Vale. Boarding school would be lovely, she told me with a longing sigh. Imagine an entire school where the dead just kept their mouths shut. Why would you possibly want that? asked Emma from her straight back chair in the parlor. She and Amelie would sit as heavy snows fell past the window beside them at a narrow table in the parlor, facing each other, knees touching and working with the... I can't talk. I can't talk. I'm taking a break. So, um, be back in a bit. Nearly been an hour since I went to take a break, and I think I got my access together enough to record. So, <sighs> trying to find where I was.
Why would you possibly want that? Asked Emma from her straight-back chair, chair in the parlor. She and Amelie would sit as heavy snows fell past the window beside them at a narrow table, table in the parlor, facing each other, knees touching and working with the Ouija board, Ouija board sent by W.T. Stead, with their wispy, light brown hair caught in identical, loosely bound knots atop their heads, their matching slim, willowy frames bent over the board in intense concentration. They looked like lovely 15-year-old bookends. <laughs> Emma asking questions and Amelie work Emma asked the questions and Amelie worked the triangular discs disc in theory letting the spirits spell out their responses. Sometimes the two sets of violet blue eyes that <laughs> they focus on that board didn't waver from it for hours at a time. One day I stood behind Emma. Amelie Ask the spirits why you won't talk. Amelie looked directly at me as though startled by the question, then placed her hands on the disc and it began to move. I was never sure if I was if it was pulling her fingers along or if she was pushing it. Before long, it had spelled out a sentence that read, I am talking. Then why can't I hear you, I asked. You're not listening, Emma replied. Do you hear her? Emma nodded. I hear in my I hear her in my head. It must be because you're twins, I decided. Amelie has the gift, Emma said. It drains her. It's easier if she doesn't speak. Blythe had been paging through the fashion section of the sun, but broke from her perusal of the latest ankle boots. That's one gift I don't want. Give me a pair of these boots any day. That same night I was awakened by a strange sound outside my window. Lifting my head to listen, I decided it must be a branch blown loose, banging in the winter wind. I returned to a light sleep, only to be reawakened by the noise, which was now louder. I was proud of my logical mind and did not allow the ghostly goings-on in, in town to frighten me. But that night, I shrunk low under my covers. Had Mom summoned more spear some spirits who had decided to stay? And if so, why was it walking around outside, outside Blythe's in my bedroom window? I looked to the twin bed beside me where Blythe had decided to sleep since Mimi had vacated it. She claimed the room she shared with the twins was too crowded, and I didn't object because I hated staring at Mimi's empty bed at night. I heard the sound again, and this time I realized it sounded like a footstep out on the roof. Once this thought hit, I was instantly wide awake, every sense alert. Blythe continued to sleep, so, tight with fear, I crept out of my bed and jostled her awake. Listen, I whispered. The creaking from the roof had become unmistakable. Wordlessly, Blythe left her bed and went to the window. I followed behind her. There was, indeed, a pale, ghostly figure standing on the roof. Blythe pushed up the window. Amelie, she called in a harsh whisper. Come inside! What's she doing out there? I asked. I don't know, Blythe answered, but it's freezing outside. Moving Blythe aside, I raised the window sash and leaned out. Amelie was indeed out there, barefoot on the key roof. The moonlight poured down on her. With the winter wind blowing her hair and nightgown, she made an eerily ghostly figure. But of course, she was no ghost. What could she be doing? Had she gone crazy? Instinctively, I looked for Mimi to take charge and then, and then remember that she wasn't there. I was the oldest now. It was up to me. Go get mother, I instructed Blythe as I began crawling out the window. Amelie was perilously close to the end of the roof. She didn't seem to know it, though. As I drew closer, I realized that she was in some sort of trance. It would have been... I would have to pull her back without startling her and causing her to tumble off. And I had to act quickly. She might fall at any moment. 
With my arms wide for balance, I inched slowly toward our sister. Amelie, stop, I said softly, needing to keep my voice calm. Come back toward me. Amelie walked along the edge of the roof with the sureness of a cat. Amelie, look at me, I commanded her, but Amelie didn't acknowledge me. She didn't even seem aware of my presence. And then, suddenly, she tottered, arms windmilling, windmilling fran crazily. Frantic, I clutched her nightgown, then lunged forward and gripped her wrist tightly with my other hand. For a horrible second, I was sure she would go off the roof and pull me over with her. Bending my knees, I threw my weight backward as hard as I could. Both of us fell back hard onto the roof, hitting with such force that we rolled to the very edge. If I hadn't been able to keep my to keep hold of her and jam my heel into the wooden gutter to stop our slide, I'm sure we would have sailed right out into the night. Looking to the house, I saw Mother at our open bedroom window with Blake hopping anxiously behind her. Mother's expression was shocked and confused. Come in here this minute, she scolded. What are you girls doing? Amelie blinked hard and recognition returned to her face. She shook her head, seeming as bewildered that she, that she was out on the roof on a winter's night dressed in her nightgown as we were to find her there. Follow me, I instructed her, crawling back to the cold falling, crawling back up the cold roof on my hands and knees. Amelie obeyed, and soon Mother was pulling us inside. What were you doing out here? Blake asked her, but Amelie just blinked with confusion. Clearly, she didn't know. Once inside and wrapped in blankets, I explained to Mother what had happened. She sat beside Amelie on Blake's bed and stroked her tangled, wind-blown hair. I'm afraid you were sleepwalking, my love, she said. You mean she was asleep out there? Blythe cried. You could have walked right off the roof. Emma appeared in the doorway. What's happening? She asked, rubbing her eyes. We'll tell you in the morning, dear, Mother said. Go back to sleep. I can't, Emma said. I just had the strangest dream. I dreamed I was walking around somewhere that was very high up and the stars were all around me. Stars everywhere as far as I could see. I was flying up into the starry night when I suddenly woke up. Blythe and I stared at each other, wide-eyed. Had my sisters been dreaming the same dream? Mother held Amelie closer to her side. That was the first night that Amelie began sleepwalking, but it would not be her last. I passed the remainder of that winter with my head buried in my Christmas gift for Mother, a collection of Sherlock a collected volume of Sherlock Holmes stories starting from the very first as well as a single installment of the most recently published edition, The Terror of Blue John of Blue John Gap. It was the end of excuse me. It was the end of February on a particularly frigid morning when the whistle of ice of icy winds down from Canada reminded me to stoke the wood burning stove. The mother that mother received a letter from W.T. Stead. Girls, she announced after she'd read it, her face lit with excitement. Mr. Stead is gathering all the greatest spiritualists for an international convention in London in April, and we've been invited to attend. All of us, I said hopefully. There are five tickets for a transatlantic crossing on an ocean liner in this envelope, Mother said, taking out the tickets and holding them for us to see. I have a cousin outside London in Brighton. I will contact Agatha immediately to see if she is willing to have a stay at her house. It's too wonderful. We'll meet all the great spiritualists, said Emma. She looked to Amelie, whose face was as illuminated with anticipation as her own. We'll leave in a little over a month, Mother told us. She held Mr. Stead's letter over her heart and closed her eyes, smiling beatifically. Whatever. Beatifically. Isn't he the most generous man alive? 
We're going to London, Blake shouted, twirling around the room with her arms spread wide, nearly delirious with joy. Chapter 16, London, April 3rd, 1912. The voyage across the Atlantic was uneventful, but I endured every minute of it just the same. Much of the time, I hung at the sides, gazing out over the, over the ocean, mesmerized by its rolling waves. I had never seen the ocean before. And now I wondered how I had ever lived without it. Nothing had ever imparted such a keen sense of how small part of how small a part of a larger universe I was. At night, the feeling was amplified by the addition of stars more immense and seemingly closer to Earth than I had ever seen. Standing there with the sea breeze in my hair, the black, glittering fields of both ocean and heavens before me, I felt lifted from my own body and happy. I had to assume it was an experience akin to being in a state of grace. Blythe shared my fascination with the ocean, but for different reasons. To her, it was... To her, it was sea of possibility. One afternoon, she joined me at the ship's side. Think of all the places we might go on this ship, she said. Imagine all the things Mimi is seeing right now. Well, hopefully we'll find a better way to travel than us than us, the maid of a rich man's mistress, I remarked sourly. She's a companion, Blythe corrected. What's the difference? I quibbled. It's probably easier and more fun, she conjectured in the straightforward manner that was more and more becoming a hallmark of her personality. Besides, she's not doing anything wrong. What Nanette O'Barr does is on, is on her conscience. It's not up to Mimi, or you for that matter, to judge her. Judge not that ye may not be judged. Blake's comments made me think of Thad. Just about everything made me think of him. It was so odd that a person I had known so briefly could get so stuck in my head. I had done a similar thing with Tesla, but it didn't feel the same. When I thought of that, I recalled the fresh smell of his jacket, his white scar, the brightness in his vivid blue eyes. The power of my longing was so great that I could almost conjure an image of him standing right beside me. Sometimes I talked of that in my mind, upbraiding upbraiding him for being so foolish about the few years between us, telling him how much I wished to see him again, beginning to begging him to get on a train and come to Spirit Vale. I would insist that he felt as much for me as I did for him. Why else would he have run down to the train station to see me off on the train? These mental conversations became so animated that I sometimes listened for a reply, and half thought I heard this at words, but it was all wishful thinking. A strong wave slapped the ship, rousing me from my reverie. It apparently did the same for Blythe, who had wandered off on a path of thought of her own. Do you think Mimi is really in love, as Emma predicted? She asked. Who knows, I replied. Blythe, do you think it's Emma or Amelie who does the predicting? What's the difference? They're one person. No, they're not, I disagreed. There are differences. Amelie is off in her own world, but Emma is very much with us. Maybe, she conceded with a shrug. They're both in our cabin bedroom, being violently seasick right now, she pointed out. This ship does rock a bit, I allowed. I feel my stomach lurch sometimes. Wouldn't it be great if we could, buy, could be on one of the new White Star, White Star Line luxury liners, Blythe suggested. At dinner, all the people were talking about the Olympic and the Titanic. The Olympic was one launched last year and everyone raves about it. It's the biggest ship in the world and it's not and it's number one in luxury and speed. The Titanic hasn't even gone out yet. They say it's even better. Tickets must cost a fortune, I said. The other pa passengers are, are saying second class on the Titanic is better than first class on other ships, she replied. How I would love to see it. It didn't matter to me. Any ship that would bring me on out onto these, these rolling raves would suit. 
I think it was on this voyage that the world became that the word vast became my favorite word. I had packed the time machine by H.G. Wells and finally felt ready to tackle it again. In it, a scientist known only as a time traveler creates a machine that carries him far into the future. He tells his friends that time is a fourth dimension to which one can travel. Sitting there on a, de on a deck chair with a blanket tucked around me, I often put the strange tale down on my lap and let my thoughts drift back to Tesla. Like the time traveler, he was such a genius and said so much that I simply didn't understand. Was time travel really possible? I continued reading, immersing myself in the adventure of the story and accepting, for at least as long as I was reading the story, that time travel could be achieved. Once I suspended my doubts about that, I found the story very engaging. Finally, we arrived at a port in Southampton, in Southampton, England. From there, we took a horse-drawn cab to Waterloo Station in London. As soon as we stepped outside the station, we were greeted by a woman with blazing carrot hair and a sporty red motor car with no roof. Darling, she gushed. Getting out of her, getting out of her car and greeting us with open arms. What richness to have you all here with me! Horse-drawn carriage drivers shouted at her to move her automobile, which she abandoned in the road. But she serenely ignored them. Agatha's family resemblance to mother was easy to see. She was much heavier and her orange hair was brighter. I suspected an artificial tint, but she had the same delicate nose and sparkling blue eyes. Needless to say, we all loved her instantly, even though we wished she had a bigger automobile. Mother sat in front alongside Agatha while the rest of us crushed together in the small back seat, clutching what bags wouldn't fit into in the back storage compartment. Cousin Agatha's adorable little house was in Brighton, just over an hour south of London. It was one block from the Atlantic Ocean. The moment Agatha parked the, the motor car, Blythe was out and running toward the water. I was eager to see the beach, too. It was another first for me. Come on, I said to Emma and Amelie as I climbed out, about to follow Blythe. We'll stay here, Emma declined. I noticed Amelie had covered her face with her hand as though the very sight of going as though the very sight thought Jesus Christ as though the very thought of going to the ocean was disturbing her greatly. Alright then, I said, turning away from them. I caught up with Blythe on the boardwalk. A chilly, wet April wind blew a moist, salty spray around us. At home there was not any sign of a thaw, but here the first notes of spring played in the air. Let's go down to the water, Blythe suggested. Without waiting for my reply, she hurried across the rocky beach to the water's edge. Down by the shoreline, the wind was strong and whipped her blonde curls around her face. Oh, isn't it wonderful? She cried exultantly. It is, I agreed. I wonder why Emma and Amelie don't want to see it. They're frightened of the ocean. They're probably afraid there are spirits floating in the sea, Blythe said flippantly. On the way over, it probably wasn't seasickness at all. It was sheer terror. They didn't even want to look at the ocean once. Her remark made me think about all the shipwrecks throughout time. Were Emma and Amelie seeing something there that the rest of us could not? After we walked along the shore, we returned to the boardwalk and then to Cousin Agatha's house, straightening our wind-tossed hair as we went. Inside, in the front parlor, Mother was telling her cousin about the reason for our visit. The subject of the conference is nothing less than the fate of the world, said Mother. Sitting at a cloth sitting at a cloth covered table as Agatha brought in a tray laden with a porcelain tea teapot and cups. Seth has been invited by President Taft to attend a World Peace Conference in America this April. A World Peace Conference, Agatha, Agatha asked. Whatever for? Don't we have peace already? Taft feels that the that world peace is in a precarious state at the moment and that a world war could erupt at any time. 
mother said, relaying what Stead had told her in her last letter. A world war? Agatha questioned skeptically. There has never been such a thing, and it seems less likely, likely to occur now than ever. Queen Victoria's granddaughter, Alexandra, is, in, is the Tsarina of Russia, and her husband, Nicholas, is a cousin. Our jo our George V is the, is the first cousin of Kaiser Wilhelm. Victoria's granddaughter, Ina, is Queen of Spain. Marie of Maria's queen of Romania. Victor Victoria's daughter-in-law is the daughter of the Danish royal couple. She had nine children and 42 grandchildren, and most of them married into royal families. They rule the world. You certainly know your royals, I remarked. Oh, we we English love the royalty, Agatha replied, and I could go on from there. Everyone is related to everyone. My point is that the world is one big happy, fam happy family affair these days. Families quarrel, mother's mother pointed out. Stead says they've been playing a political chess game that's about to, to explode into a violent fight. As it is, things have not been entirely peaceful. Last year, Italy declared war on Turkey, and this year war broke out, out in the Balkans. However that is, Agatha said. Stead says that, conf that conflict's not over. Even though there's been a truce, Mother said, you'll be hearing more about the Balkans, even maybe even this year. A world war could very easily happen. Agatha's bright expression darkened as she poured the tea. Oh, well, I do sincerely hope not. So does President Taft. Such a conflict will surely affect America one way or another. England is our ally, I added. We'd have to get involved. This is terrible, Blythe cried. I don't want a war. No one does, said Mother. That's why Stead has called together the best spiritualists. He wants to be armed with whatever the spirit world can tell us by way of predictions. Can the dead see the future? Agatha inquired. Sometimes, Mother answered, sipping her tea. There will be psychics in attendance who make predictions. Stead himself is a psychic. Then why does he simply... Then why doesn't he simply tell your president what he knows? It's not that simple, Mother said. Psychic predictions come in flashes in an and are subject to interpretation. She used the example of Seth thinking he would die by ice. But will he slip on ice? Will he freeze to death? No one knows for certain. I should move to a sunnier clime altogether. I should move to a sunnier clime altogether were I he, Agatha suggested. Perhaps so. Nonetheless, he is a brilliant he is as brilliant a psychic as he is a journalist. I don't know about all this, Agatha said uneasily, but I wish you all success. Heaven knows that the last thing any of us want is war. That evening, Mother shared the guest room with Amelie and Emma. Blythe and I settled in on the couches in the living room. From our improvised beds, we could hear the, hear the ocean waves crashing against the shore. I love it here, Blythe whispered to me. Hmm. I murmured in agreement, half asleep. I don't think our lives will ever be the same after this trip, she said. Why's that? I mumbled. I don't know, Blythe replied. It's just a feeling. Chapter 17 In the morning, Agatha drove us back into London, even though we offered to take the train. I wouldn't hear of it, she said. I have many friends in London who I might visit. She used a map of the city to guide to guide her, and in little over an hour, we pulled up in front of an elegant townhouse over in the heart of the city. Clearly, we had arrived at the right place, for a steady stream of men and women were entering. Goodbye, darlings. I will return for you at about five. Agatha, Agatha said as we climbed out of her motor car. Suddenly, she went pale and pointed. What is it, Agatha? I asked, concerned for, 
concern, for she was trembling with excitement. She pointed at a short man with a white mustache and beard. He wore a black suit and black stovepipe hat. He's the great playwright, George Bernard Shaw, who just walked out of the building you're about That's the great playwright, George Bernard Shaw, who just walked out of the building you're about to enter, she said in a voice filled with awe. How do you know it's him? Blythe asked. I follow the theater avidly, darling, she replied. She explained. I see his picture in the paper after every opening. Either he's written the play or he's accompanying some famed thespian. Yes, he's a good friend of Mr. Th Stead's, mother said. Really? And look who he, whom he has stopped to speak to, she said with a gasp. I looked in the direction she was pointing and saw that on his way out of the house, Shaw had, indeed, paused to speak to two men walking toward the house. One was portly but dignified. One was a portly but dignified-looking gentleman with an impressive mustache with thinning hair on his head whom I guessed to be in his early fifties. The other man was short and clean-shaven with curly black hair. He was much younger, probably in his early thirties. He looked somehow familiar to me, but I couldn't think of why that should be. Who are they? Emma asked. I don't know. I don't know who the younger gentleman might be, but the older one is none other than Dr. Arthur Conan Doyle. What? I cried. Surely I'd heard her wrong. Indeed, Agatha confirmed. He's the author of the Sherlock Holmes mystery. Do you read him mysteries? Do you read him in America? I would have answered her if I could have found my voice. At the very at the very moment I have the newest Holmes home story, the speckled band tucked away in my carpet bag. Now it was my turn to tremble in awestruck amazement. It's practically all Jane reads, Blythe informed her. I didn't know he was a doctor. Oh yes, darling. He's also a physician. I watched while Conan Doyle and his friend bade goodbye to Shaw and continued on. My heart began to pound as I realized they were entering W.T. Stead's house. Why would this man of science, this paragon of rational deductive logic, be entering a convention of renowned spiritualists? There could be only one answer. He had come to debunk these mediums as frauds. Using his brilliant powers of observation, he would expose the tricks they use they used to work their wonders. This was my chance to learn the truth from a man whose word I could never doubt. It was as though Sherlock Holmes himself had come to, to deliver the final answer to my questions. When we entered the main front room of the building, I didn't see Conan Doyle or his companion, but W.T. Stead appeared from one, of the, from one of the side rooms and instantly approached Mother. William! Mother gre greeted him warmly by his first name. I had never heard her use it before. He had a broad, open face with dark brows and, pierce, and piercing eyes. He was a man of middle years, probably in his fifties, and, and wore a full white beard. Maud, at last we meet, he said, taking Mother's hands in his. You were just as you described in your letter, only more lovely by far. And these, of course, are your daughters. I can guess their names from your descriptions. He greeted my sisters each appropriately by name, each correctly by name. And you must be Jane, the aspiring journalist, he surmised when he got to me. Yes, sir. It's an honor to meet you. Thank you so much for the tickets, I replied. If you can spare the time, I have so many questions I would love to ask you. It would be my pleasure, he said. He led us to a ballroom where all the invited guests were assembled. There were approximately a hundred or so men and women. I caught sight of Conan Doyle sitting in the far corner with his dark-haired companion. After a few moments, W.T. Stead appeared in, front, in the front of the crowd and announced that, that rooms had, had been set up throughout the house for the conducting of seances. Additionally, there would be sessions of tarot, Ouija board, and automatic writing. Throughout the rest of Stead's address to the crowd, I couldn't take my eyes off Conan Doyle. 
I imagined a scheme for meeting him in which I dropped my dro- dropped my copy of the Strand and pretended I didn't know who he, who he was, but praised the speckled band extravagantly, causing him to like me so much that he made me his assistant. In another flight of imagination, I fantasized being invited to join him in solving a crime that took place there at the psychic convention. The adventure of the meddling mediums is what it would be called, and I'd be featured as the American girl. After Stead's speech, a paper was posted announcing the morning's events, with different mediums and psychics being assigned to various rooms. Mother was to join a circle of mediums in the attempt to contact Queen Victoria herself, in the hope of getting her to comment on the present situation and perhaps give a word of sage advice for her quarreling descendants. I noticed Mother engaging in, in conversation with a bald, with a balding, pleasant-looking man in his early 50s. This is Mr. Robertson, she introduced when I approached. This is my daughter, Jane. She would also like to be a writer like yourself. Pleased to meet you, I greeted him. You're not a medium or psychic, then? No. My experience is as a merchant marine and then a writer of sea stories, he said. His speech immediately revealed him as American. Have you read any of them? No, I don't think so. I couldn't recall ever reading a sea story. But your name is very familiar to me, I said said truthfully. I struggled to recollect where I'd heard of him. Perhaps you've read Sinful Peck, Sinful Peck, he suggested. I should think not, Mother demurred. Not with a title like that. It's not as scandalous as you might think, Mr. Robertson said with a laugh. It's a sea story like my others. What brings you to this conference, Mother asked him. Well, madam, it's a funny thing. Although I have a great deal of personal experience of the sea, and my father was also a captain on the Great Lakes, I always have the sensation that my stories are coming to me in visions of the future. You're psychic, Mother said. I don't usually admit this freely, but I believe I am. I, he can, he said. I confided this to my fellow writer, Mr. Stead, and he invited me to come to the conference to explore the possibility further. Best of luck to you, Mr. Robertson. Mother said, departing to meet the other mediums in her Queen Victoria seance in a library on the second floor. Since you are both writers, I was wondering if you knew Dr. Conan Doyle, I said. I met the man once, though I don't really know him, Mr. Robertson replied. He's Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, you know. He was knighted for his service as a doctor in South Africa during the Boer War and for writing about it. Do you know why he's here? I do know he is with the British Society of... A psychical? Yeah, psychical research. That is the most respected group that researches all occurrences of the of the supernatural. Is he a believer? He calls himself an agnostic, which means one one who does not know. I suddenly had a name for what I was, an agnostic. It was reassuring to know that it could be named something other than confused, bewildered, unsure. I spoke about writing a bit further with Mr. Robertson and about the difficulties of getting published. He agreed to make some time to discuss professional writing with me on the last day of the conference. Thanking him profusely, I hurried off to Mother's seance. When I reached the second floor library, Amelie, Emma, and Blythe were already inside. Mother had talked her fellow mediums into allowing the twins to join them as they linked hands at a round table. Stead was one of the participants along with two other very average-looking middle-aged men and an elderly woman. A large glass ball was in the center of the table. Blythe and I were permitted to observe if we promised not to interfere with even the slightest sound. We sat on the straight-back chairs lined up against the wall. Just as the seance was about to begin, Conan Doyle slipped quietly into the room and took a seat right beside me. I was dying to say something to him, but but had promised my silence.
With the lights very dim, Stead began the session by summoning the queen to come and help her country one last time. Conan Doyle leaned close to me. There's no rest for the Miria. Weary, I take it, he quipped irreverently. The old girl ruled for over fifty years and they still want her to work. Stead stopped talking and all the mediums looked at us in annoyance. Sorry, Conan Doyle apologized. Proceed. Stead resumed his attempt to summon the Queen's spirit. After a few moments, one by one, the other mediums, including Mother, joined him. The elderly woman grew forceful, raising her voice and demanding that Queen Victoria appear in the same tone one might command a dog to sit. I didn't imagine a queen who had once ruled half the world res would respond well to that approach. All this calling, conjuring, and commanding went on for the better part of fifteen minutes. Blythe sat forward and watched. Conan Doyle had slid low in his chair, his arms wrapped around his belly. This could go on all day, he complained to me under his breath. You don't think she'll show up? I whispered. I hoped she would, so I could expose them in some fakery, he confided. You're not a believer, I asked. Not for a second, he answered in a low voice. Stead asked Enterquise and myself to observe and alert him to signs of fraudulence. He must give Taft accurate information. Just to hear him speak was heaven. It was exactly like I expected. I imagine the voice of Dr. Watson in the home stories. Forevermore, I would hear that rich, resonant voice speaking when I read the text of a Sherlock Holmes adventure. If it's a fraud, why is nothing happening? I quietly inquired. My intuition is that these particular people are honest, but misguided. They've set out to, to do something impossible and thus derive no result. I looked over to Mother, whose eyes were shut and her brow furrowed with concentration as she quietly tried to summon the Queen. Emma and Amelie had also closed their eyes and were gently rocking back and forth. And then, abruptly, Emma lurched at her feet, breaking the chain of handholders. Surging rivers of gushing blood, she cried, throwing her arms open. Her eyes were now wide as though viewing the horror she spoke of. Amelie's face was also contorted into an expression of absolute terror as she sat ramrod straight in her chair. Do not do this thing, my child. Stop it now, I say. It is chaos. It is suicide and damnation. This was not Emma's voice, not even if Amelie was speaking through her. Her right arm swung around like a compass finding true north, and she pointed to Conan Doyle. You will suffer such unbearable pain. I weep for your intolerable loss. The color drained from his face as Emma locked him in a fierce, wild stare. Brace yourself, man. Your son will go to fight in France, and he will not return. This was too much. I hoped fiercely that he did not have a son. I wanted to scold Emma, demand that she stop saying such awful things. I stood to admonish her, but I never got the chance. Heed this warning from a queen to a boy king, Emma shouted. Conan Doyle let a strangled cry of surprised anguish. At the exact same moment, Emma and Amelie both crumpled to the floor. One of the mediums threw the light switch and everyone rushed to their aid, lifting them by the, by the shoulders, patting their cheeks. Give them room to breathe, Mother commanded. Step back. I noticed Conan Doyle, his palm pressed over his eyes, and a trail of tears running down his face from either eye. Was it possible that this paragon of logic had been reduced to such a state by Emma's prediction? Apparently it was so. Ah, oh, my head hurts. Pause. 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 Back from pause two. <sighs> Chapter 18. Emma and Amelie came, came to consciousness pretty quickly, but seemed dazed. Cousin Agatha was telephoned to collect them along with Mother Blythe and me. While we waited in the lobby of the townhouse, I saw no sign of Conan Doyle, though I did catch sight from time to time of the dark-haired man, Eric Wise. 
While Mother went off to tell W.T. Stead why she was leaving, I spied Wise looking at some old, some oil paintings hanging on the wall across the way. Leaving my seated sisters and summoning my courage, I approached him. Excuse me, I said. Do you know if, Miss, if, if Dr. Conan Doyle is still here? He is not, Wise responded, studying me with his intense, nearly black eyes. Are you a friend of his? No, only a great fan, like so many others, I replied. I was at the seance where the medium spoke to him, and I saw how upset he was. Yes, he was completely rattled. He rushed home, desperate to see his teenage son, Kingsley. My hand flew to my mouth. A boy king? Was it, in re was it a reference to Kingsley? Why snapped his fingers in annoyance? Just like that, he has shifted his position completely from that of arch skeptic to a total belief of spiritualism. That one seance convinced him. I asked. Tried to hide. I tried to hide the fact that I was scrutinizing him. Why did he look so familiar? He called once. He recalled once attending a speech given by Queen Victoria. The medium, he claimed, spoke in her voice. Plus, she knew of his son. I reminded him that he is a figure of public note. It would be easy enough for a charlatan charlatan to learn that he has an adolescent son my sisters are not charlatans and they know absolutely nothing of about dr conan doyle i assured him probably sounding more than a touch defensive your sisters they were the ones who spoke to him and do you also have and here he rolled his eyes derisively the gift no i do not but you're a believer he assumed I hesitated, caught between loyalty to Mother Amelie and Emma and my first response, which was to be truthful. I am searching for the truth, I said at last. I am an agnostic, I added, proudly trotting out my new word. Commendable, he remarked. Don't be fooled, young lady. As a magician, I have traveled Europe, completely convincing audiences that I have conjured magic, which I know to be no more than a sleight of, ha than sleight of hand, clever machinery, and the ability to misdirect. I began learning such tricks as a boy, and do you know who my first teachers were? Who? Mystics and mediums. I trained as an assistant. They let me in on all their secrets. Did you ever hear of the Fox sisters? One of the sisters trained my mother. I said. He chuckled. The Fox sisters could make loud cracking pops with their toe and finger joints. They traveled the USA, performing their little stunt, passing the sounds off as contact from another world, and got rich doing so. These women founded spiritualism, a mumbo-jumbo religion millions of gullible, du gullible dupes now believe in, including, alas, as yesterday, my poor misguided friend Dr. Arthur Conan Doyle. But they found the skeleton of the dead man who contacted the Foss sisters in the wall of their house. I said, reminded of the firework celebration that had followed this event back when I was a child. This caused Eric Wise to, Wise to laugh uproariously. My dear girl, I merely said I merely said the fox girl the foxes were dishonest. I never implied they were stupid. They could well have heard tales of a man dying or disappearing in that house. Maybe it was a story that someone murdered him and hid him in the wall. Many fake mediums are extremely clever. They have a sharp eye for the tell. The tell? I questioned. It's a physical tick like a mouth quirk, a jerk of the elbow, a quiver of the eyebrow, something a person does that indicates an emotional reaction. Usually the person who does it is not even aware of it, but the medium is aware and it directs the medium to keep pursuing that line of inquiry, inquiry until a nerve is struck. I thought of mother seeing Auntie Lily's dead husband back so many years ago. Had she simply read the envelope addressed to Auntie Lily or had Auntie Lily given hints, shown a tell that she missed her aunt? 
Maybe both things had happened. Conan Doyle must have displayed some tell when there was talk of war. Wise, uh, Wise went on. The medium picked up on it and targeted him, assuming that he was too old to be a soldier, but probably had a son he was worried about. Was Emma really that cunning? I had never seen any sign that she was ever anything other than sweet and sincere. Jane, Blythe called to me. Agatha has arrived. I said goodbye to Eric Wise and hurried to join Mother and my sisters. Together we piled into the motor car and headed back to Brighton, all of us uncharacteristically silent, lost in our own musings. When we arrived at Agatha's house, Emma and Amelie headed straight to bed. That sort of genuine contact saps one's energy completely, Mother commented. So if a person doesn't collapse, then he or she is fake? Is a fake? I asked casually. I had seen Mother collapse only that one time when I was very small. Not at all, she replied. Mediums have varying degrees of stamina and strength. Emma and Emily are young and inexperienced. Only after they had gone up did Mother tell Agatha everything that had happened. So the twins have inherited your gift, Agatha surmised. There can be no doubt after today, Mother replied. How can it be, though? Agatha wondered fretfully. In what way can a spirit travel back from the spirit realm to communicate with the living? You know, Agatha, everything vibrates, Mother said. I hadn't heard her use her famous Tesla-inspired phrase in a while, and was mildly surprised. When a person passes over, that soul begins to vibrate at a different rate from those of us still on this earthly plane, Mother continued. A medium is like a wireless transmitter, simply tuning into the, in the correct frequency. The gift is mo no more than a talent for discerning the correct fre spirit frequency. Fascinating, Agatha murmured. It made so much sense when Mother spoke, but Eric Wise had almost convinced me he was right. Which was it? I was more confused than ever. Say, Maud, Cousin Agatha said uneasily, I would so love to speak to my late husband, Reginald. Do you think it might be possible to contact him? We can certainly try, Mother agreed. That night, after supper, Mother, Cousin Agatha, Blythe, and I sat around the table in the parlor. Mother produced her glass ball and set it in the center. Close as I had always been to seances, I had never before participated in one. Neither had Blythe's. We exchanged nervous glances. With the room almost completely in darkness, Mother began calling on the spirit of Reginald to come to us. A silvery beam glowed in the glass ball. The shades had been drawn, but my eyes darted to a sliver of moonlight that had found its way through a crack between the window and the shade, creating a line of light. Was the ball reflecting that? I see him! Cousin Agatha cried, nearly screaming. He's there in the ball! I leaned forward, peering into the glowing ball. In the center, a shape of dark silver wavered. I squinted at it and saw how it could be interpreted as the shape of a tiny man. Reginald, it's Agatha. Are you alright? The shape kept wavering and Agatha looked to Mother for guidance. Reginald is, is telling me he is fine, Mother said. Can you hear him? Agatha asked urgently. He had a rather squeaky voice for a man. It's a little squeaky, yes, Mother confirmed. Was she being honest? Was she deceive her own cousin? Is he in the ball? I asked Mother. His essence is inside the glass, Mother replied. He does not choose to speak through me, but rather to me. He always was such a gentleman, Agatha remarked, as if this was some this was something gallant she was proud of Reginald's spirit for doing. He's being very polite, Mother confirmed. He's keeping his distance somewhat so as not to burden me. No doubt he doesn't want to tax your strength too much, Agatha leaned in until her nose almost touched the glass ball. Reginald, do you know if there will be a war coming? Mother Mother cocked her head to one side as though listening intently. She frowned and then pursed her lips in distress, listen, listening to Reginald speak to her in a voice that only she could hear. 
Do you mean naval ships? Mother asked Reginald. No. What kind of ship? Navy? Agatha cried. Then there is a war. No, Mother said. No war. At least, he doesn't know for sure. He's warning me about danger from a ship, but I'm not sure what he means. Mimi might be on a ship, Blythe offered. Oh, dear, Mother said with a gasp. She might be. Reginald, is Mimi in danger from a ship? At that moment, a face appeared upon above the glass ball. Underlit from the ball below, it seemed to hover there, disembodied and glowing. It's Mimi, Blythe shouted and then screamed. She was right. It was Mimi. I sprang back and groped the walls in the darkness, desperate for a light switch. I overturned the face and splashed water on me as I crashed to the floor. I found a... I overturned a vase that splashed water on me as it crashed to the floor. I found a switch, and the room was once again ablaze with light. You're not dead, Mother cried in an emotion-filled voice. You're not dead. The tremble ran through, through her, and she began to cry with relief. I'm very much alive, Mimi assured us. I'm so sorry to scare you all. I was waiting quietly in the dark, but I only meant to stick my head into your circle to say I was not on a ship and quite all right. Are you really all right? I asked. What are you doing here? It turned out that Mimi had traveled to France, Spain, Italy, Germany, and Holland, in that order, and had just arrived in England with Benjamin Guggenheim and Nanette Obar and their entourage of about 15 other servants and friends. I telephoned Auntie Lily at the hotel and she told me you were here, Mimi, Mimi explained. Blythe ran from the table and threw her arms around Mimi's waist. I'm so glad to see you, she shouted, squeezing tightly as Mimi stroked her yellow curls. I was so ex I was also ecstatic to see Mimi, but unresolved resent resentment kept me frozen where I stood. It took Mimi only minutes to switch emotional tracks from the joyful relief at seeing at seeing Mimi alive to a white hot fury. Has it never occurred to you in all these months to write to us to tell to tell us that you were alive? She shouted. I sent a telegram from France when I arrived. Mimi defended herself. We never received it, Mother shouted, turning red. The nearest telegraph offices in Buffalo, I offered. They might not have bothered to deliver it. I felt the same mix of relief and anger as Mother was expressing, but an instinctly sisterly bond compelled me to come to Mimi's aid. You should have known it wouldn't reach us, I added, ambivalent about exactly how much help I was willing to offer. Well, at first I planned never to come back, Mimi blurted. Never come back? I echoed, outraged. What? Mother hooted in a voice more shrill than I'd ever heard her use. If I had known that insanity was playing in your head, I would have gone to Europe myself and dragged you back personally. Mother, I'm a grown woman, Mimi said in a dignified voice. Then behave like one, Mother shouted. Do grown women run away from home like Huckleberry Finn? Mimi threw herself into one of the chairs despairingly. I thought it would be better for all of you if, I, if you could be rid of me, she admitted in a voice choked with tears. Why ever would you think that? Mother asked incredulously. You know why, Mimi shot back. I do not, Mother insisted, because I'm a person of black descent. Agatha gasped at the news. No one knows that. Life pointed out. But I don't want to live a lie, Mimi said passionately. She dropped her head and began to cry. I'm so confused. Mother came and sat at a chair beside Mimi. Has something happened, Mimi? She asked gently. No, well, she replied, wiping her eyes. Only that I've fallen in love. Mother threw her arms wide. We knew it. Emma and Amelie predicted it months ago. Fallen in love? Blythe shrieked happily. Then it's true. With who? Is he a prince? A duke? Tell! He's Mr. Guggenheim's valet, Victor, 
Mimi told us. The valet? Agatha echoed, clearly chagrined. With all those rich people around you, you fell in love with the valet? Blythe could not hide the disappointment in her voice. How old is this Victor? Mother asked. Twenty-three, Mimi answered. Does he love Does he love you too? Blythe asked. He says so. Then what's the problem? I asked. It's the issue of race, Mimi revealed. What if we marry and have a child with dark skin? Have you told him about your background? Mother asked. Mimi shook her head and began twirling a curl that had escaped from the elaborate upside style she now wore. I've been too frightened. You must tell him, Mother advised firmly. If he is a man of character and truly loves you, it won't matter to him. Mother, that's naive, Mimi argued. It's not, Mother disagreed. Not everyone in the spirit in the world is a bigot. You can live in Spiritville where people are open-minded about such things. I don't want to live in Spiritville. I've been living in the real world and I like it there. I want to stay there. Even when the so-called real world is so cruel as to deny true love because of its own small-minded bigotry? Mother shot back. Mimi slumped lower on her chair. Even then, she said, the conversation came to one of those natural lulls where no one knew what to say next. Finally, Agatha turned to Mother. I suppose Reginald is gone, she said. Mother nodded, causing Agatha to sigh sadly. That's a shame. He was always a good problem solver. I wonder what he meant about the ship being dangerous. Speaking of ships, I have some exciting news, Mimi told us, brightening a bit. I'll be traveling home on the maiden voyage of the most fabulous ship ever to cross the ocean. The Titanic. <sighs> Chapter 19 Oh. <gasps> Chapter 19. That night, Blythe and I stayed up deep into the night, into the next morning, talking with Mimi, who curled up with a quilt in one of Agatha's overstuffed armchairs. The twins had woken up earlier and weren't nearly as surprised as the rest of us to see her. Then they returned to bed with Agatha and Mother, who made Mimi promise not to run off again without saying goodbye. Tell us everything about Victor, Blythe requested eagerly now that the adults were asleep. Mimi sat forward in the chair. Jane has already seen him. Do you remember, Jane? I did, and I told her so. Who could forget him? Mimi went on. He's so handsome with large, dark eyes. He's slim with broad shoulders. For some reason, Mr. Guggenheim assumes he's Egyptian. But he's not? I asked. No. He thinks it's funny that Mr. Guggenheim just jumped to that conclusion by looking at him. So he doesn't tell him otherwise. But Victor was born in England and his ancestry is Italian. Will you continue traveling with the Gu with the Guggenheims? I asked, trying to keep tones of disapproval from my voice and not completely succeeding. There was tension in the air as Mimi looked looked me in the eyes. I know you don't approve of Nanette, she said after a long pause. Have I ever said so? I replied. You don't need to say anything, she snapped. That's your business. I only asked if you'd be traveling with them. Really, I didn't want to fight. Mr. Guggen... Ugh. Mr. Guggenheim is here in England. We left Nanette behind in Paris with her maid so she could see family and friends. She aboard the Titanic when it docks in Cherbourg to pick up passengers. It looks better. I scoffed. Who do you think? Who do they think you're fooling? Everyone knows what's going on between them. There's a fortune in money involved, so Mr. Guggenheim doesn't like to leave any proof that his wife's lawyers could get a hold of, Mimi explained evenly, as though it was a mere legal consideration. When did you become so worldly, I asked. She had changed. She seemed older, more sophisticated, and I didn't like it. 
I've been traveling the world for over half a year, Jane, and I've been with Nanette, who has a cabaret singer in Paris before who was a cabaret singer in Paris before she met Mr. Guggenheim. So yes, I am worldlier than when I left. I don't think that's so bad. Well I do, I said, raising my voice. You've been dazzled by Nanette and her crowd. You think the way they live is alright just because they're rich. I don't think they're happy or good. You never used to care so much about money. What is it you think that what is it you think money will do for you? Ha! Life laughed. Why? What won't it do? I'm not talking to you, I snapped. Money protects a person from the world, Mimi replied forcefully. Why do you need protection from the world, I demanded. Why can't you get this through your head, Jane? Because I'm black. No, you're not. Life insisted. I am, Mimi shot back. I've been to Europe and even to Northern Africa. It's not like America. Although I did observe instances of racism in France and other places, people of color are not second-class citizens everywhere in the world. Then why are you so worried? Then why are you worried about telling Victor about your background? I asked. Mimi sighed deeply. Because he wants to live in America, and so. I don't want to talk about all this, Blythe said instantly, clasping her hands over her ears. They fought the Civil War before we were born. Save slavery is ended, and everyone should treat everyone fairly. You're as naive as mother, Blythe, Ma Mimi commented. I don't care. All I want to know is how Mimi intends to get me on the Titanic with her, Blythe said. What are you talking about? Mimi asked, startled. Blythe threw off her blanket and crossed to Mimi, perching on the arm of her chair and grabbing hold of her hand. You have to. You must get me on that ship. It's my dearest wish in the whole world. Since when, I challenged. Don't you remember? I told you how I longed to be on that ship, Jane. Mimi, you said Nanette has a maid. I'll be the maid's assistant, as long as I don't have to wear a uniform. I wouldn't like that. Better yet, I'll be your assistant. I'll be the companion of the companion. I'll sleep on the floor. It doesn't matter as long as I can be on the Titanic. Did you know they call it the Ship of Dreams? I've read that in a magazine. Mimi gazed down at her so thoughtfully. I suppose you're old enough to be a mother's helper, she considered. Yes, Blythe cried. I love helping mothers. When have you ever helped a mother with anything? I countered. I help our mother. Ha! Barely. You have to be prodded and reminded just to pick up your petticoats off the bedroom floor. Well, this would be different, Blythe replied. I can do it. In France, I spoke to a woman who was very nice. We met at the ticket office of the White Star Line when I was picking up our tickets. She had been sent tickets for the liner La France, but when when she learned that her two little girls would not be allowed to take meals with her and her husband, she changed the La France tickets for ones on the Titanic. Her first class tickets on the light on the La, on the La France cost the same as second class tickets on the Titanic. That's nice, but what does it have to do with me? Blythe asked a touch impatiently. Mimi smiled. I'm getting to that. Juliet, that is her name, asked if I knew of a nanny who might want to take care of her two little girls for the duration of the trip because she is pregnant with a third child. I said I didn't, but I took her name and address just in case I've heard of anyone. I'll do it, Blythe exulted. You're only 13, I reminded her. Nearly 14, and Mimi will be there. Can you phone her, Mimi? I have no phone number, but I could send a telegram. Emma appeared in the room, rubbing her eyes, her long hair on her face. What's going on? Blythe leaped from the chair onto Emma, hugging her happily. I'm going on the Titanic with Mimi, she revealed. She revealed. In the moonlight, her face glowed, luminous with happy excitement. We should all go home together on the boat we came over on. That's a great idea, I agreed. We can get Mimi a ticket. 
I don't want to be on that old tub, Life said. We should all go on the Titanic. We debated this for another half hour, but clearly no one was going to change her mind. Emma returned to her room to her guest room on the second floor. One by one, Mimi, Blythe, and I drifted off to sleep. Some hours later, I was roused from sleep by the repeated banging of a shutter outside the window. A howling wind had arisen while we'd been sleeping. Once awake, I needed to use the bathroom, which was on the second floor, and so I got off the couch. When I came out of the, beth- out of the bathroom, I noticed that the door to the room Mother, Amelie, and Emma were sharing was open. Mother and Emma slumbered, but Amelie was not in her bed. Looking down the dark hall, I saw no sign of her. Hurrying down the stairs, I checked the kitchen, but she wasn't there. It was only when I came back to the living room that I noticed the front door was slightly ajar. I had Amelie gone out, but where? Why? I grabbed my coat from the stand and threw it over my nightgown. Moving fast, I slipped, barefoot, into my high-buttoned boots by the front door, not even bothering to fasten them. Out in the dark, empty street, the wind blew my hair in front of my eyes and made my coat flap open until I clutched at it. Looking in every direction, I saw no sign of her. Not knowing what else to do, I headed down toward the beach and crossed the road to the boardwalk. The ocean gusts were fierce there, whipping my hair and clothing. Thankfully, the full moon illuminated the beach, enabling me to spot Amelie's lightsome silhouette down, down, down at the shoreline. Was she crazy? What was she doing there all alone in the dark? It was certainly far from warm. With my head down, I set out across the beach, treading with determination despite the sand pouring into my boots. In the middle of the beach, the sand made it too hard to walk, so I stopped to pull off my footwear. At the moment I pulled off the second boot, I looked over to Amelie, and the next second I flung the boots and raced across the beach at full speed. The lunatic was walking into the ocean, but the time I reached her, she was thigh deep in the crashing white foaming surf. Amelie, I screamed. Amelie! She never turned. Was she ignoring me? Was the howling wind carrying my voice away? Amelie! She continued forward and was quickly to her waist. Tossing off my coat, I headed into the white foam. The freezing water sent a painful shock from my toes to my head. It sucked the breath from my lungs. I forced myself to move forward through the crashing surf, dancing about, dancing about, dancing about to avoid being knocked over. Amelie! I called. She kept going. I couldn't swim, but neither could she. There was no choice but to go after her. Pushing my way through the wi- through the wind and the water, I hurried toward her. Amelie, you're going to get us killed! I shouted, desperate to get her attention. It was impossible to make headway with the wind and water pushing me back. Finally, finally, I got close enough to yank her arm. With physical strength I'd never experienced before, I pulled her back to shore. Though she resisted me every step of the way, her back to me, pulling to go out to sea. When we were knee-high, I pushed her forward so hard she fell down. I stumbled onto her, falling on, falling into the frigid water. Amelie, what are you doing? I screamed. A freezing wave hit us both in the face. When I shook off the water, I really saw Amelie up close for the first time that night. Her eyes were wide and she gazed at me without recognition. The sound of a voice crying out made me turn to the shore. Blythe was... Blythe was there, also in her nightgown, jumping and waving her arms. Mimi was racing down the beach, but blankets bundled in her arms. In the next minute, Blythe was crashing through the surf toward us. Help me get her up, I commanded. Together, we were able to get her out of the water. Mimi met us with a wool blanket opened wide to enfold for... To unfold first Amelie, then me. My teeth chattered uncontrollably, and yet Amelie was strangely serene. She's sleepwalking again, Blythe realized as Mimi spread the blanket over my shoulders. Why does she do it? Mimi asked. She shook Amelie. Wake up! She shouted. Wake up! Don't do that, I said. 
Amelie blinked hard and then began to cry. Are you awake, Amelie? I asked. She nodded as the tears streamed from her eyes. Why are you crying? I asked, though I knew she wouldn't answer me. Amelie's tears escalated into huge, rolling sobs. She was nearly hysterical. Mimi took hold of her shoulders firmly. Come on, let's get home. It's freezing out here. We made our way across the beach without saying anything more. As soon as we opened Agatha's front door, though, we heard horrifying screams from upstairs. That's Emma! Blake cried as she, Mimi, and I raced to the second floor. The door was still open and we found Mother trying to subdue Emma, who thrashed wildly on the bed, shrieking with terror. <laughs> terror. Emma, wake up! Mother shouted. You're dreaming! Wake up! She threw Mother off with the elevated strength of the truly terrified and desperate. Her eyes were like saucers. Her arms swept back and forth rapidly. Help me, Mother! She screamed. Help! I'm drowning! You're not drowning, Emma! Mother, mother yelled. I'm here! You're dreaming! Agatha bolted into the room, mud pack and sleep bonnet on. Who's drowning? What's happening? Emma's having a nightmare, I told her. A waking nightmare. Life added. Oh, the night terrors, Agatha said. Amelie came into the room, dripping water everywhere. I wasn't sure if she was awake or asleep. Only then did Mother and Agatha look at us closely. You're wet, Mother cried aghast. Where have you been? Before we could answer, Amelie got onto the bed and put her arms around the frantic Emma. Like a blind person, Emma felt her wet hair and wet face and slowly seemed soothed. We have to get her out of that wet nightgown, Agatha said, but Mother held up a hand to stop her. Emma laid her head on, em on Amelie's shoulder. Together, they lay down on the bed and quickly drifted back to sleep. Now what do you suppose that was about? Mother asked. Chapter 20 18 chapters left. Uh, <laughs> why am I so dumb? Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. I've read... I've read like eight and a half chapters. And I have. I. I uh, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> tonight because I have a headache and other problems <laughs> but um I I need to finish this by tomorrow I should have started recording earlier that was my fault but um yeah tomorrow I guess bye